so this is going to be really different because this teaching is a preemptive overview of Mark chapters 11 through 12 and, you know, to a certain extent, all the way through to chapter 16. The story Mark is telling here is the title of this teaching, namely that Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, is greater than the temple and he will, in fact, increasingly judge and functionally replace the temple over the course of these chapters. This is not to say that the temple was not used after Yeshua died and resurrected. And it was even used by the disciples after his resurrection. But when we look at the functional purpose and meaning of the temple, Yeshua is going to really put things into perspective for us. And I know this may come as a shock to some people, but I hope you'll hear me out. I've been studying the temple for years, and it's incredibly fascinating and a very difficult area of studying, but Mark's meaning is also very clear here. And so we're going to explore it, and this will even help us to understand why in Revelation there is no temple, per se. In fact, the entire city is set up as though it's one big communal temple. We'll also be better able to understand why a certain group within Judaism increasingly saw itself as the functional temple or the, the Mikdash Adam, you know, in the face of the corruptness of the Jerusalem establishment beginning before the Maccabean revolt and re-emerging in the late Hasmonean era. Now, the destruction of the temple in 70 of the Common Era was not a fluke or something that happened outside of God's will. Um, nor was the destruction God's angry response to animal sacrifice after Yeshua's crucifixion. I've heard that one too. Um, the destruction of the temple, second temple, the reason for it is the same as the first time around. Rejection of Yahweh, uh, idolatry, albeit of a different sort this time, uh, the establishment being in bed with the nations, uh, corruption and oppression. As we go through this over the course of the next eight weeks, maybe more than eight weeks, uh, it's really going to help if we understand the meta narrative. Uh, that's the overarching story. So we can be looking for it and recognize it when we see it. You know, people think that the Gospel of Mark is so bare bones and so simple, but really it isn't. It's it's the most neglected gospel, which is why I, I chose it to focus on, you know, first, it's why we've been going, it's good grief, this is week 48. <laughs> anyway, so, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character and Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand that, and called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and on my website. Whoops, and transcripts. 
can be had for most broadcasts at my website. Now, if you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Excuse me, my nose is starting to run. It is spring has sprung. It is March 31st when I'm recording this. Woo! And my, my neighbor across the street, he is mowing his lawn for the first time and I was out collecting all the leaves that just blew in with our uh, 30 mile per hour winds the other day and yeah so if I sniff I apologize I can't help it I probably should have taken a Benadryl but they make me a little sleepy anyway all scripture this week comes courtesy of the English Standard Version but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want a list of my resources can be found attached to this transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Now first, I want to take a look at all the greater than statements by Yeshua in the Gospels. Because these are really, if he wasn't who he says he was, um, these were pretty arrogant. Matthew 12, 6. And I'm, I'm leaving out repeats. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. There we have it, right there, the uh, title of this broadcast. Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the teaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. John 4.12 Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. To which Yeshua replies in verse 26 that he is in fact the Messiah. So yeah, greater than Jacob. Uh, John 5.36 uh, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. And he's talking about John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So his testimony is greater than John's testimony. Uh, John eight fifty three, Are you greater than Abraham, our father who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And in verse 58, he counters with, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, Hebrews 3.3. 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Mm. Okay, now there may be more. I didn't look that hard. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, you know, those are the ones that I can think of. And I didn't include um, duplicate statements from other Gospels, obviously. Um, and the funny thing is that Yeshua never makes the greater than statements in Mark's actual Gospel. But then he doesn't have to because from beginning to end, Mark is portraying Yeshua as the prophesied Yahweh warrior of Isaiah doing battle with Israel's demonic enemies, as well as sin and death. He shows Yeshua doing things that the Torah can't do, that the temple can't do, showing a lot more discernment than Jacob, far more trust than a and obedience than Abraham, 
having superior wisdom to Solomon, who had zero when it came to foreign women. Seriously, all right? Um, a greater lawgiver than Moses, and being way, way more obedient than Jonah. Not setting the bar too high there on that one. <laughs> um, Yeshua wasn't just another prophet or some sort of new patriarch, although he was those things, but he was also more. He's greater than. As we will see, he is the new capstone of the eschatological temple. And eschatological meaning anything that deals with the end times and the whole final dispensation of humanity. And no, I'm not a dispensationalist. It's just a useful word. It means something. It's not only mean the bad thing. All right. Um, where, you know, Christianity has replaced, you know, Israel, that kind of stuff. All right. Um, the builders rejected a stone, Yeshua, and Yahweh has made it the pinnacle of the temple made of living stones, which is, whoops, all of us. Hopefully you didn't hear that. I just whacked the microphone. As he is the capstone, it means he is the greatest, period. But in chapters 11 and 12 of the Gospel of Mark, we specifically see him confronting not only Jerusalem, but also the temple operations and the establishment in charge. We will see every leadership group, both formal and self-appointed, challenging his authority for questioning and judging the temple operations in chapter 13. It will culminate in the prophesied destruction of the temple, which happened at the end of that 40-year generation, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and leveled the temple, even going so far as to throw the huge stones down from atop the temple mount. If you have never seen the trumpeting stone and where they found it, that's a good thing to look at. And uh, I will link some information in the transcript. Now, that the temple had become every bit as corrupt as Solomon's temple was no secret. And that isn't something we only find in the Gospels. It was written about in the Dead Sea Scrolls and many pseudepigraphic and apocryphal accounts. Temple corruption preceded the Maccabean Revolt. And, you know, after the uh, initial cleansing and rededication by the Hasmonean brothers, it was back to being corrupt again under the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Simon Tassi. You know, when the Romans installed Herod the Great as king of Judea and, you know, not only of Judea in New Testament times, but also Galilee and Transjordan and Samaria and uh, Perea, um, Herod sought to marry himself into the high priestly family and started to appoint relatives in laws to the position. Um, by the time that Yeshua's ministry started, the high priestly family of Annas, who, and he was the father of Caiaphas, had been buying the privilege and renting the high priest garments from Rome for decades. This put them in a powerful position and, you know, like other Roman collaborators, like tax collectors, they found a myriad of ways to fill their own pockets with gold. Now, looking forward to the judgments of Mark 11 and 12, they were the huge absentee landlords taking advantage of the poor who were being forced to sell their lands under the burden of Roman taxes on top of the tithes that were owed. They often ended up as tenants working the lands formerly their own 
And that will be very important, understanding the parable of the tenants and the vineyard. So Yeshua is going to clear out the vendors and money changers from the court of the Gentiles, and they will demand to know what right he has to do that. Now, ironically, he declared his authority during the untriumphal entry into Jerusalem, where the people recognized him as at least a prophet on a mission, but no one in any sort of leadership position welcomed him as would have been appropriate, which is why I call it the untriumphal entry. The When we look at it, what a triumph was supposed to be, okay? The people saw and recognized his authority, but like in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, the leadership is blind and deaf and will not see or hear. In the cursing of the fig tree and in referring to his authority to have the entire Mount Zion, metaphorically the temple and the temple hierarchy, removed and cast into the sea, he openly declared to his disciples his right to judge and not only to judge, but to condemn the entire operation. Now, Yeshua will declare that the proof of his authority is proved by John the Baptist's authority, which all the people recognized, but the leadership refused. All right. I already mentioned the vineyard and the tenants, but what about the four other controversies? Each group of leaders approaches him on the Temple Mount for the purposes of tripping him up so that they can discredit and reject him publicly. You know, first... It's the chief priests, scribes, and elders, you know, uh, and then that's followed up by the parable of the vineyard, the tenants. Next, he's confronted by the Pharisees and Herodians, you know, strange bedfellows there, enemies, who had perhaps been planning since uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And they try to force him into becoming an enemy of either the people or Rome. Then the Sadducees try to get clever with him, but instead end up inadvertently proving that eternal life is a real thing. Oops. Then we have one scribe who is impressed and asks a legitimate question, proving that they all aren't out for his blood. Yeshua closes it out by pointing out that the Messiah is greater than David. There's another greater than. And of course... David was the one who received the blueprints for the first temple from the Spirit and gathered all of the building materials so that Solomon could put it together. Finally, Yeshua is going to blast what I can best describe as the glory of the temple. The free will offering of the widow, although praised, will present a, a, and highlight a huge problem. So, I want to take a few minutes here and explain what a temple is to the ancient mind, because it may not be what you're thinking. It's not what a lot of modern people are thinking. Um, it wasn't a place to go to church and hold worship services. Although, you know, you did, there were worship services there, obviously. A temple was built or actually not the way that we do it though. <laughs> now a temple was built on a place where heaven and earth were thought to overlap. That's why ziggurats had stairs up and down the sides so that the gods could descend to earth and climb back up into the heavens again, just like the 
atrociously named, quote-unquote, Jacob's letter, which is clearly not a letter in the Hebrew, okay? So you couldn't just build one anywhere, and this is actually why Muslims build their mosques atop the sites of ancient religious sites they conquer. It isn't just about honor and shame, although there is that. It's about recognizing the power of sacred ground. Now, you know, Allah has taken over the overlap between heaven and earth in the minds of the conquered or the conquerors. Now, does that make sense? So as far as the te Jerusalem temple goes, we know from extra biblical documents that it was set up as a cosmic entrance point to the heavenly realm. And in fact, the outer curtain was woven with patterns of the cosmos. So when we look at the idea of Yeshua replacing the temple, we are talking about him becoming the overlap between heaven and earth. And when we join with him, we become micro temples all over the world. Places where God can be worshipped without a middleman. That's why we don't have to go anywhere to worship God. Where, you know, forgiveness for sin can be had without sacrifices. Where prayers can be offered and heard without hindrances. Okay, where we can approach God while ritually unclean. And that's a good thing, too, because we do not have red heifer ashes, boys and girls. Um, Yeshua fulfills that temple function for us. That's why the veil will rip. Not so we can dance into the, disrespectfully into the Holy of Holies, but so that we can access the heavenly realm directly through Yeshua as that mediator as the final temple. That's all very important to understand. Now let's get back to the second temple, the temple that stood in the time of Yeshua and fell in 70 of the Common Era. The Jerusalem temple was the wonder of the ancient world. But it was built with the Roman levied same taxes that were breaking people. The temple tax, on the other hand, paid for the daily Tamid offerings and the... Um, and the festival offerings, so that all were included in, in the offerings. That's why foreign Jews would contribute, even if they would never be able to make the pilgrimage. But these offerings, um, where the wealthy were putting in large amounts, were for temple improvements. Or temple operations. Now, Yahweh wasn't happy with the whole scenario, and especially now that his king has been rejected. The people have come to a place where they're worshiping the temple and rejecting God. Serving the temple and mistaking it for serving God. So in a way, it's the 6th century BCE all over again. Instead of defacing the temple with idols and alternate altars and carvings of every sort of crawling thing etched into the walls, they were beautifying it while losing their way in a bunch of man-made loopholes and oppressive activities. Instead of doing righteousness and justice, they're committing the same types of transgressions as their ancestors who killed the prophets. And of course, they're about to do it again and for the exact same reason. People in authority do not like to have that authority challenged. I want to read from Malachi 3 really quick to show you how serious this was and to show you that 400 years before Yeshua was born, the priesthood and temple establishment were already corrupt again. And considering the fact that the new temple was less than a hundred years old at that point, that's pretty damning right there. 
evidently there is something systematically wrong where the temple has lost its meaning as a place to honor God and has become an industry. All of the priests come under condemnation throughout Malachi, who rebukes them for divorce, which we've covered. Um, still a problem in the first century and living wickedly in general while going through the motions. Truly, you know, it's as though Malachi wrote it during the first century. It goes on to talk about how they are disrespecting Yahweh with offerings that aren't even fit for the governor's table. And Malachi tells them that um, if they do not repent, Yahweh will be coming in person to deal with them in the person of his messenger, the Messiah, their Lord, Adon, who will come to judge them, the temple establishment. All right. Malachi 3, and we're going to get some of 4 too. Starting in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But... Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, which he's rebuked the priests for, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And we're going to see that in the temple. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Um, and chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So this is an you better or else. And a lot of stuff in scripture, a lot of the, what the prophets say, you have an opportunity here, don't blow it. So we've got this double whammy here in these chapters because they're committing these sins here in Malachi. And they're also committing the sins of the time of the judges in demanding a new king because they're rejecting Yahweh when they reject John the Baptist and by extension, Yeshua as well. Remember that John was the one who announced Yeshua as the one who had baptized with the spirit and with fire, the one that was greater than he was. When Yeshua rode into town, which we're going to see next week, only the leadership refuses to recognize him and they will spend the rest of Mark either trying or succeeding in killing him. The scriptural idea, of course, was for Israel to receive her king and to restore him to the throne of David in a renewed Zion slash Jerusalem. A goal, of course, that will not be realized until the events we see at the end of Revelation unfold because 
he is rejected by those who have the earthly authority to recognize him and install him as king. The new exodus will take place as Isaiah prophesied, but not as they expected. You know, there is a new sheriff in town and he is a lamb. Um, oh, we've got a few minutes. Well, we've got about half a minute here before the break. And Revelation, when you read Revelation, I know that people focus on, they think it's about the lion, but the lion is mentioned once and he's immediately replaced by a lamb. Lamb gets mentioned like 28 times. And uh, when he goes to battle, the sword is coming out of his mouth. His robes are dipped in his own blood, um, not in the blood of his enemies. So we really need to start, I'll tell you, rethinking all this. But uh... This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's episode of Character in Context, Mark um, Part 48. We're doing an overview before uh, we go into chapters 11 and 12. We're talking about Yeshua as being greater than the temple, and over the next two chapters, he's going to replace the temple and condemn the temple, the temple leadership, and the temple operations because they had become horribly corrupt. Um, that's just not from Yeshua. That's from other writings among the Jews as well. This was a problem. Now, let's look at uh, a timeline slash outline for the rest of Mark. In um, chapter 11, we have the entry into Jerusalem and the initial showdown in the temple. Continuing in 11 and through the end of 12, we have a series of controversy dialogues where all the leadership is represented as attacking and rejecting him, you know, save one lone scribe. Um, four to six controversies, depending on how you end up counting them. Chapter 13 is Yeshua's pronouncement of the future destruction of the temple. In 14, we have the Passover slash Last Supper, and he speaks about the New Covenant, and we see his arrest and trial before the Sanhedrin, which constituted the formal legal denial of Yeshua. In chapter 15, they deliver him to Pilate, and so the nations reject him too. In chapter 16, of course, we have the resurrection and glorification of Yeshua as the new eschatological temple. The Jerusalem temple establishment and the Jerusalem leadership in general have thrown in their lot with a building and with Rome and have formally rejected Yahweh. So Yahweh rejects the temple, the temple establishment, and the Jerusalem leadership, and the days of the temple and their power are numbered. Really, it's like Isaiah all over again. Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., etc., all over again. So I want to look at the verses that would have been very important to the leadership 
what they were looking forward to but failed to see because they didn't understand what God wants, which is salvation and reconciliation for the Jews and the nations and who he is, you know, merciful even to his enemies and self-sacrificing. Of course, many leaders would turn to Yeshua later. It's believed that at one point, 20% of first century Jews were living in allegiance to Yahweh through acceptance of Yeshua as Messiah. Okay, let's start out with Isaiah 52, starting in verse 7. And we did this previously. All the verses we're going to talk about here um, in my series, Isaiah and the Messiah. Messiah. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Isaiah forty-three fifteen. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And of course, shortly after this, he cryptically declares uh, in verse 18, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Combined with Malachi, which we talked about in the last half hour, they were clearly expecting Yahweh to act personally and decisively to fulfill both his promises and his warnings. Throughout the scriptures, we see the theme, your slash our God reigns. All right. Even though Yahweh gave them over in judgment to human kings when they rejected him in the time of the last judge, Samuel, he never stopped being their true king. Human kings were not much different than priests in that they're both mediators. The priests facilitated worship and the kings were supposed to facilitate the workings of justice and righteousness toward the vulnerable. Torah was intended to give them the capacity to render wise and just judgments, but humans will always fail. Which is why the idea of a solely human Davidic king would never provide the perfection that Yahweh demands in his earthly representative. And it's the same reason that the priesthood failed time and time again, too. Power corrupts. It made David feel as though he could have whatever and whoever he wanted in the form of raping another man's wife. And that he could order a murder by proxy to cover it up and just go on with his life. It made Solomon feel as though he deserved hundreds of wives and even more concubines. And that he was justified in raising taxes on the poor in order to pay for them all. It just happens. We want kings and we want priests, but in the end, they are human beings. Yahweh had to put an end to it with Yeshua and program a restart through him as well. He is the priest and king who can never be corrupted, the perfect mediator and Messiah. So that's the thing with this temple replacement, the temple being replaced with the people of God. Although it might appear as though Paul made it up, he didn't. Oh, and I hope I'm going to pronounce this right. Laura Navajas Espinal 
wrote a really interesting article back in 2015 named From the Qumran Mikdash Adam to the Ismaili Temple of Light. Heikal Nurani. I will link it in the transcript if you are interested in reading it or any of her other articles. It, this is actually the fourth chapter from her PhD thesis in 2015, and she's currently doing her postdoc research in Hebrew and Aramaic studies throughout the unity at the University of Madrid. So she's just kind of smart, um, smarter than me, for sure. Now, a lot of this article isn't relevant because she's making connections with a branch of Islam, but it's a good starting place for branching out into other second temple era template Temple-related documents like the Temple Scroll, the War Scroll, uh, 4Q, Florigelium, and others. And it's in 4Q, Florigelium, or um, 4Q174, that we find the document I want to talk about. Although, we're first going to talk about the Temple Scroll 11Q19-20 through 20 as well. Of course, as I've explained before, the first number is in reference to the cave number where the scroller fragment was found. Uh, there were 12 caves. Uh, Q stands for Qumran, where the caves are located. And the final number denotes the manuscript number. Sometimes it will also include letters like ISA for the Great Isaiah Scroll, or M, which is the designation of the War Scroll, or FLOR for Florigelium, meaning a collection of literary extracts. Now, 4Q Flor is a sectarian commentary on certain verses put together in such a way as to provide revelation to the Qumran community for the last days. Now, it's famous for three reasons. One, it calls for the rise of the interpreter of the law, a.k.a. another Moses figure. Two, calls for a Davidic Messiah. And three, the Mikdash Adam, or the Temple of Humanity. Obviously, this is of great interest to Christians because we see Yeshua as the greater Moses and the greater David. But this Temple of Humanity is very interesting as well. Of course, they saw themselves, their yahad, or community, as serving that purpose, that they were a temple. Now, some brouhaha had occurred at some point, and their teacher was rejected by the establishment, the Hasmonean establishment, we think, and they retreated into the Judean wilderness in order to live lives of holiness and separateness. They saw only themselves as true Israel, and everyone else is pretty much damned and boy, did they love writing about how damned they thought everyone else was. These folks preach love, but it really only applied to one another. And even then, it only went so far. You did not want to break their rules. But they speak of three temples. The first is Yahweh's eschatological temple, which we see in other writings resembling a city. Uh, the second is the corrupt Jerusalem temple. And the third is the Temple of Humanity. Now, I'm going to be honest. The wording can go either way, and scholars debate as to whether this is another temple made by men or a temple made out of men. I lean toward the latter, but some scholars I really respect go the other way, which is fine. It's not like we got these guys where we can ask them, right? So even without this Mikdash Adam... In other writings, they speak of their community in ways that really make it sound like an idealized earthly temple. 
uh, the only true priesthood and the place where Yahweh dwells among them and will act accordingly or will, will to protect them and vindicate them when he destroys the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians and their little dog too. And they can do this conceptually because of what the temple meant to ancient people. That overlap of heaven and earth. It's been seen in Eden, which was not Mount Moria, geographically speaking. Um, we see it also in uh, Bethel and Sinai. It can move to wherever Yahweh wants it to move. It moved with the tabernacle, for that matter. In their minds... When they moved in the wilderness, the overlap moved with them. They became the community that embodied the worship of Yahweh and he dwelt among them because they remained in a state of ritual purity, um, not complete ritual purity because they still had to live, uh, and lived such strict lives that, you know, how could he possibly, um, not want to live there too? Um, yeah, those Essenes, they had some ritual purity going on, let me tell you. And they were right about, one, the temple being corrupt because, two, the temple establishment was corrupt, and three, they saw the Pharisees were doing some wicked things like any cause divorce and practicing polygamy as a way to punish unpleasing wives that could not, if they could not afford divorce, they were marrying their nieces, which is super gross, beyond gross. Uncle Jimmy and Uncle Bud, I love you, but man, just no. Um, and they saw the Hellenization and collaboration with the Romans, and they were furious about the Hasmoneans and the high priestly family. They saw every form of Judaism but their own as being hopelessly wicked. And I am so glad that no one this, these days thinks the same thing about their narrow range of beliefs. <clears throat> Um, the Qumran Covenanters weren't imagining things. They were responding to a crisis of faith, but they weren't going about it in a particularly good way. And yet they had their own problems, as we can see in the Temple Scroll. The Temple Scroll is very revealing, as are all their writings. In the Temple Scroll, we see a rewriting of Deuteronomy without mentioning Moses and the elimination of some laws and the addition of others. Whoever wrote this seems to have considered themselves the Deuteronomy prophet like Moses. Um, a second Moses who could give a second law code for the coming eschatological era. What did he take away? Oh, all the mentions of Moses, which means he was plagiarizing, um, as well as all mentions of foreigners and sojourners. That's right. All those laws about how you were to treat non-Jews were out the window because there wouldn't be any. And if there wouldn't be any allowed in the land or anywhere near Jerusalem and the ginormous new temple that was the size of Jerusalem, you know, back in that day and would have required the filling in of the valleys of Jerusalem. And there are three. The community was incredibly xenophobic. Okay. He also, this guy, also removed all scripture references to divorce and polygamy, which was definitely a backlash against the hated Pharisees. New laws were added strictly regulating divorce and marriage to nieces, again, smacking down on the Pharisees. New festivals, new sacrifices, 
and new festival rituals were also added to the law. Uh, this is, remember, this is the Qumran community that wrote most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So their new temple was like them and conformed to how they had engineered their own lives. Glad we never do anything like that. You know, imagine that, you know, imagine that Yahweh is just going to run things our way in the world to come or even now. <clears throat> but we can see that although Yeshua would undoubtedly not be troubled by some of their regulations, when it comes to the unforgiving nature and exclusion of not only other Jews, but also Gentiles, yeah, not going to fly. Yeshua didn't come to reconstitute Israel around a group like the Qumran community Yahad. He came to constitute, reconstitute Israel around himself, period. And that's always difficult for us to come to terms with. There will be people in the world to come whom we don't want to see there and we think shouldn't be there and with whom we would wildly disagree on some issues, but because he's not creating Israel in our image, but his own, you know, tough cookies for us. So all these temples and temple ideas had to be replaced because they were incompatible with what a temple should be and especially what the eschatological temple will be, which, according to Isaiah, would always revolve, involve a worldwide community of worshipers. The fact that there had been two temples and humans botched it up both times for pretty much the same reasons, um, you know, slash sickness, even if the symptoms looked a bit different, shows us that humans can't handle something like that any more than we can handle human kingship without it becoming corrupted. Heck, any more than, you know, we can handle the Torah itself without doing messed up things to it and in the name of it. There just had to be changes, radical changes. You can't patch an old cloak with new cloth or put new wine in old wineskins and expect things to work out. In the end, you will just be experiencing the same failures over and over again. Power corrupts. Look at how many ministers have fallen into sexual and financial scandals. You know, Ravi Zacharias is just the latest in a long line of men who became unaccountable and unstoppable. And before anyone else accuses me of giving a pass, let me remind everyone that it's far easier for a man in his 70s to sexually assault a woman than it is for a woman in her 70s to sexually assault a man, okay? Women, we have our own issues. We can be really creative with the nonsense we pull, and women can also commit financial crimes, but the truth of it is we don't get nearly as much opportunity. So I'm picking on men today. You guys are big enough, you can take it. Centralized power revolving around a building or a mere human is going to go wrong. They will act wrong. And so will we with respect to them? You know, it's the human condition. We see it in politics all the time where we might admit in private that our side behaves abominably, but you know, we pretend otherwise when talking publicly because we want to bolster our cause, even if we have to be flexible with the truth, you know, a.k.a. lying and whitewashing. Or we make excuses for it. 
or we turn a blind eye while, you know, coming down on the other side like a like a freight train going 100 miles an hour through a schoolyard. Um, now, what we need is a perfect king for whom no excuses are needed, who doesn't demand of anything, anyone, anything he wouldn't do for himself and more, who tirelessly cares for their vulnerable and never abuses them, who doesn't sin, who is not ambitious, who is a lamb and will never be a dragon. We can't have that with humans. Not with any human. David started out well. So did Solomon, but boy howdy. Okay. The good kings of Judah still did some appallingly terrible things. And, and we need a temple not made with human hands. We can come to worship and take pride in a building and, and put our faith in it. We can put our faith in a sacrificial system and then go running to commit sin, knowing that we can sacrifice and be okay again, or at least think we can. We can use a building as a power base, a smokescreen, a dazzling illusion of honoring Yahweh, and be as far from him as east is from west. But a temple not made with human hands? That's something we can't add beauty to. It's something unchangeable and uncorruptible. That's something we can't mess up. It is, however, something we can personally be a part of and participate in and live as though we are not separable from it. Ah, this knows, I'll tell you. <laughs> and so this is really the story of the rest of Mark. And um, Yeshua becomes the eschatological temple and the eschatological king because we see that both, you know, when earth-based, become hopelessly corrupt. And, you know, that's one of the interesting themes of the Bible. These institutions that are useful and even God-ordained, all right, but show us that no one and nothing except God is perfect and trustworthy and incorruptible. In the beginning, Yahweh was our king, coexistent with Yeshua, his creative word through which everything was created. We rebelled, um, and things got worse and worse. Yahweh proved through a flood that you cannot eliminate sin by killing almost everyone, that the seed of rebellion exists in everyone. Even righteous Noah, right? His descendants did terrible things. Of course, we're his descendants and we do terrible things too, so duh. Um, same with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Samuel's kids were a mess. Just like Eli's before him. Good kings led to bad kings. You know, the examples in the Bible are just too many to mention. And, and I don't have to, you know. Good priests would pass, and priests going through the motions would replace them, like in Malachi. Exile didn't help either. They'd just come back and do it again. Maybe a bit differently, but they'd just repeat the sin. So, um, you know, when Yeshua 
says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, he's telling us that there is no human or architectural substitute. Our interpretations of his commandments aren't enough. Sacrifice isn't enough. Everything we touch and try to control or try to regulate, we do it imperfectly and in our flesh. Sometimes we do it most often when we feel, you know, the most righteous. And I'm not saying not to keep the commandments. I'm not saying not to try. If you guys have read my books and you, you know, I wouldn't go there, but we do have a proven track record of missing the point, gumming up the works, majoring in the minors and putting our faith in the wrong people and the wrong things. Yeshua is the eschatological temple and we are called to join him as living stones. He is the head and we are called to join him as members of the body, his body. He is our king to whom we are called to give, you know, absolute allegiance. And what does that look like anyway? Well, it looks like obedience, yes, but it goes so much deeper because anyone can obey on the outside. What is Jeremiah 31 about? It's about being changed on the inside. The entire gospel, the new creation, new covenant is about being changed from the inside out. So it's real. To have someone be truly your king, you know, you have to change on the inside and become a person who is so devoted and so in love that the king's desire becomes our desire and their will becomes our will and who they are is who we must become. Any less is just incomplete devotion, you know, partial half-hearted worship and we're good at that. Anyway, so that's it for this week. Next week, we will um, start with chapter 11. We're going to have the entrance into uh, the city, the triumphal, untriumphal entrance. And I will, I'll see you then. 